Book One, Chapter Nine, Part Two of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Nine, Part Two. Five. The next day, Sunday, Edwin had a headache, and it was a bilious headache. Hence he insisted to himself and to everyone that it was not a bilious headache, but just one of those plain headaches which sometimes visit the righteous without cause or excuse, for he would never accept the theory that he had inherited his father's digestive weakness. A liability to colds he would admit, but not on any account a feeble stomach. Hence, further, he was obliged to pretend to eat as usual. George was rather gnat-like that morning, and Hilda was in a susceptible condition, doubtless due to nervousness occasioned by the novel responsibilities of the musical evening, and a Sabbath musical evening at that. After the one o'clock dinner, Edwin lay down on the sofa in the dining-room and read and slept. And when he woke up he felt better, and was sincerely almost persuaded that his headache had not been and was not a bilious headache. He said to himself that a short walk might disperse the headache entirely. He made one or two trifling adjustments in the disposition of the drawing-room furniture, his own disposition of it, and immensely and indubitably superior to that so pertinaciously advocated by Hilda, and then he went out. Neither Hilda nor George was visible. Possibly during his rest they had gone for a walk. They had fits of intimacy. He walked in the faint September sunshine down Trafalgar Road into the town, except for a few girls in dowdy finery and a few heavy ewes with their black or dark blue trousers turned up round the ankles far enough to show the white cotton lining, the street was empty. The devout at that hour were either dozing at home or engaged in Sunday school work. Thousands of children were concentrated in the hot Sunday schools. As he passed the Bethesda Chapel and School, he heard the voices of children addressing the Lord of the Universe in laudatory and intercessory song. Near the Bethesda Chapel, by the Duke of Cambridge Faults, two men stood waiting, their faces firm in the sure knowledge that within three hours the public houses would again be open. Thick smoke rose from the chimneys of several manufactories, and thin smoke from the chimneys of many others. The scheme of a Sunday musical evening in that land presented itself to Edwin as something rash, fantastic, and hopeless, and yet solacing. Were it known he could excite only hostility, horror, contempt, or intense bovine indifference, chiefly the last, breathe the name of Chopin in that land. As he climbed Duck Bank, he fumbled at his pocket for his private key of the shop, which he had brought with him. For, not the desire for fresh air, but an acute curiosity as to the answer to his letter to the solicitor to the hall trustees, making an offer for the land at Shawport, had sent him out of the house. Would the offer be accepted or declined, or would a somewhat higher sum be suggested? The reply would have been put into the post on Saturday, and was doubtless then lying in the letter-box within the shop. The whole future seemed to be lying unopened in that letter-box. He penetrated into his own shop like a thief, for it was not meet for an important tradesman to be seen dallying with business of a Sunday afternoon. As he went into the shutter-darkened interior, he thought of Hilda, whom many years earlier he had kissed in that very same shutter-darkened interior one Thursday afternoon. Life appeared incredible to him, and in his wife he could see almost no trace of the girl he had kissed there in the obscure shop. There was a fair quantity of letters in the box. 
The first one he opened was from a solicitor, not the solicitor of the tall trustees, but Tom Orgreave, who announced to Edwin Clayhanger, Esquire, Dear Sir, that his clients, the Palace Porcelain Company of Longshore, felt compelled to call their creditors together. The Palace Porcelain Company, who believed in the efficacy of printed advertising matter and expensive catalogues, owed Edwin £180. It was a blow, and the more so in that it was unexpected. Did I come messing down here on a Sunday afternoon to receive this sort of news? he bitterly asked. A moment earlier he had not doubted the solvency of the Palace Porcelain Company, but now he felt that the company wouldn't pay two shillings in the pound, perhaps not even that, as there were debenture holders. The next letter was an acceptance of his offer for the Shawport land. The die was cast, then. The new works would have to be created, lithography would increase. In the vast new enterprise he would be hampered by the purchase of Maggie's house. He had just made a bad debt, and he would have Hilda's capricious opposition to deal with. He quitted the shop abruptly, locked the door, and went back home, his mind very active, but undirected. 6. Something unfamiliar in the aspect of the breakfast-room, as glimpsed through the open door from the hall, drew him within. Hilda had at last begun to make it into her room. She had brought an old writing-desk from upstairs, and put it between the fireplace and the window. Edwin thought, doesn't she even know the light ought to fall over the left shoulder, not over the right? Letter-paper and envelopes and even stamps were visible, and a miscellaneous mass of letters and bills had been pushed into the space between the flat of the desk and the small drawers about it. There was also an easy chair, with a freshly covered cushion on it, a new hearth-rug that Edwin neither recognised nor approved of, several framed prints and other oddments. His own portrait still dominated the mantelpiece, but it was now flanked by two brass candlesticks. He thought, if she'd asked me, I could have arranged it for her much better than that. Nevertheless, the idea of her being absolute monarch of the little room, and expressing her individuality in it and by it, both pleased and touched him. Nor did he at all resent the fact that she had executed her plan in secret. She must have been anxious to get the room finished for the musical evening. Thence he passed into the drawing-room, and was thunderstruck. The arrangement of the furniture was utterly changed, and the resemblance to a boarding-house parlour after all achieved. The piano had crossed the room, the chairs were massed together in the most ridiculous way, the sofa was so placed as to be almost useless. His anger was furious but cold. The woman had considerable tastes in certain directions, but she simply did not understand the art of fixing up a room, whereas he did. Each room in the house, save her poor little amateurish breakfast-room or boudoir, had been arranged by himself, even to small details, and well arranged. Everyone admitted that he had a talent for interiors. The house was complete before she ever saw it, and he had been responsible for it. He was not the ordinary, inexperienced, ignorant husband who leaves all that sort of thing to the missus. Interiors mattered to him, they influenced his daily happiness. The woman had clearly failed to appreciate the sacredness of the status quo. He appreciated it himself, and never altered anything without consulting her, and definitely announcing his intentions to alter. She probably didn't care a fig for the status quo. Her conduct was inexcusable. It was an attack on vital principles. It was an outrage. Doubtless, in her scorn for the status quo, she imagined that he would accept the fait accompli, 
she was mistaken. With astounding energy, he set to work to restore the status quo ante. The vigour with which he dragged and pushed an innocent elephantine piano was marvellous. In less than five minutes, not a trace remained of the fait accompli. He thought, this is a queer start for a musical evening. But he was triumphant, resolute and remorseless. He would show her a thing or two. In particular, he would show that fair play had to be practised in his house. Then, perceiving that his hands were dirty and one finger bleeding, he went majestically, if somewhat breathless, upstairs to the bathroom and washed with care. In the glass he saw that, despite his exertions, he was pale. At length he descended, wondering where she was, where she had hidden herself, who had helped her to move the furniture, and what exactly the upshot would be. There could be no doubt that he was in a state of high emotion in which unflinching obstinacy was shot through with qualms about disaster. He revisited the drawing-room to survey his labours. She was there. Whence she had sprung he knew not. But she was there. He caught sight of her standing by the window before entering the room. When he got into the room he saw that her emotional excitement far surpassed his own. Her lips and her hands were twitching, her nostrils dilated and contracted. Tears were in her eyes. Edwin, she explained very passionately in a thick voice, quite unlike her usual clear tones, as she surveyed the furniture. This is really too much. Evidently she thought of nothing but her resentment. No consideration other than her outraged dignity would have affected her demeanour. If a whole regiment of their friends had been watching at the door, her demeanour would not have altered. The bedrock of her nature had been reached. It's war, this is, thought Edwin. He was afraid. He was even intimidated by her anger, but he did not lose his courage. The determination to fight for himself and to see the thing through no matter what happened was not a bit weakened. An inwardly feverish but outwardly calm, vindictive desperation possessed him. He and she would soon know who was the stronger. At the same time, he said to himself, I was hasty. I ought not to have acted in such a hurry. Before doing anything, I ought to have told her quietly that I intended to have the last word as regards furniture in this house. I was within my rights in acting at once, but it wasn't very clever of me, clumsy fool. Aloud he said with a kind of self-conscious snigger, What's too much? Hilda went on. You simply make me look a fool in my own house, before my own son and the servants. You've brought it on yourself, said he fiercely. If you will do these idiotic things, you must take the consequences. I told you I didn't want the furniture moved, and immediately my back's turned, you go and move it. I won't have it, and so I tell you straight. You're a brute, she continued, not heeding him, obsessed by her own wound. You're a brute. She said it with terrifying conviction. Everybody knows it. Didn't Maggie warn me? You're a brute and a bully, and you do all you can to shame me in my own house. Who'd think I was supposed to be the mistress here? Even in front of my friends you insult me. Don't act like a baby. How do I insult you? Talking about boarding houses, do you think Janet and all of them didn't notice it? Well, he said, let this be a lesson to you. She hid her face in her hands and sobbed, moving towards the door. He thought, she's beaten, she knows she's got to take it. Then he said, 
Do I go altering furniture without consulting you? Do I do things behind your back? Never. That's no reason why you should try to make me look a fool in my own house. I told Ada how I wanted the furniture, and George and I helped her. And then a moment afterwards you give them contrary orders. What will they think of me? Naturally they think I'm not your wife, but your slave. You're a brute. Her voice rose. I didn't give any orders. I haven't seen the damn servants, and I haven't seen George. She looked up suddenly. Then who moved the furniture? I did. Who helped you? Nobody helped me. But I was here only a minute or two since. Well, do you suppose it takes me half a day to move a few sticks of furniture? She was impressed by his strength and his swiftness, and apparently silence. She had thought that the servants had been brought into the affair. You ought to know perfectly well, he proceeded, I should never dream of insulting you before the servants. Nobody is more careful of your dignity than I am. I should like to see anybody do anything against your dignity while I am here. She was still sobbing. I think you ought to apologise to me, she blubbered. Yes, I really do. Why should I apologise to you? You moved the furniture against my wish. I moved it against yours. That's all. You began. I didn't begin. You want everything your own way. Well, you won't have it. She blubbered once more. You ought to apologise to me. And then she wept hysterically. He meditated sourly, harshly. He had conquered. The furniture was as he wished, and it would remain so. The enemy was in tears, shamed, humiliated. He had a desire to restore her dignity, partly because she was his wife, and partly because he hated to see any human being beaten. Moreover, at the bottom of his heart he had a tremendous regard for appearance, and he felt fears for the musical evening. He could not contemplate the possibility of visitors perceiving that the host and hostess had violently quarrelled. He would have sacrificed almost anything to the social proprieties. And he knew that Hilda would not think of them, or at any rate would not think of them effectively. He did not mind apologising to her, if an apology would give her satisfaction. He was her superior in moral force, and naught else mattered. I don't think I ought to apologise, he said with a slight laugh. But if you think so, I don't mind apologising. I apologise. There. He dropped into an easy chair. To him, it was as if he had said, You see what a magnanimous chap I am. She tried to conceal her feelings, but she was pleased, flattered, astonished. Her self-respect returned to her rapidly. Thank you, she murmured and added. It was the least you could do. At her last words, he thought, Women are incapable of being magnanimous. She moved towards the door. Hilda, he said. She stopped. Come here, he commanded with gentle bluffness. She wavered towards him. Come here, I tell you, he said again. He drew her down to him, all fluttering and sobbing and wet, and kissed her, kissed her several times, and then, sitting on his knees, she kissed him. But though she mysteriously signified forgiveness, she could not smile. She was still far too agitated and out of control to be able to smile. The scene was over. The proprieties of the musical evening were saved. Her broken body and soul, huddled against him, were agreeably wistful to his triumphant manliness. But he had had a terrible fright, 
and even now there was a certain mere bravado in his attitude. In his heart he was thinking, By Jove, has it come to this? The responsibilities of the future seemed too complicated, wearisome and overwhelming. The earthly career of a bachelor seemed almost heavenly in its wondrous freedom. Etches v. Etches. The unexampled creature so recently the source of ineffable romance still sat on his knees, weighing them down. Suddenly he noticed that his head ached very badly, worse than it had ached all day. 7. The Sunday musical evening, beyond its artistic thrills and emotional quality, proved to be exciting as a social manifestation. Those present at it felt as must feel Russian conspirators in a back room of some big grey house of a Petrograd suburb when the secret printing press begins to function before their eyes. This concert of profane harmonies, deliberately planned and pouring out through open windows to affront the ears of returners from church and chapel, was considered by its organisers as a remarkable event, and rightly so. The Clayhanger House might have been a fortress, with the blood-red standard of art and freedom floating from a pole lashed to its chimney. Of course, everybody pretended to everybody else that a musical evening was a quite ordinary phenomenon. It was a success, and a flashing success, yet not unqualified. The performers, Tertius Ingpen on the piano, on the fiddle, and on the clarinet, Janet Orgreave on the piano, and very timidly in a little song by Grieg, Tom Orgreave on the piano, and his contralto wife in two famous and affecting songs by Schumann, and also on the piano, and Edwin, sick but obstinate as a turner over of pages, all did most creditably. The music was given with ardent sympathy, and in none of it did any marked pause occur which had not been contemplated by the composer himself. But abstentions had thinned the women among the audience. Elaine Hill did not come, and far more important, Mrs Orgreave did not come. Her husband, old Osmond Orgreave, had not been expected, as of late, owing to the swift onset of renal disease, hitherto treated by him with some contempt, he declined absolutely to go out at night. But Edwin had counted on Mrs Orgreave. She simply sent word that she did not care to leave her husband, and that Elaine was keeping her company. Disappointment, keen but brief, resulted. Edwin's severe sick headache was also a drawback. It did, however, lessen the bad social effect of an altercation between him and Hilda, in which Edwin's part was attributed to his indisposition. This altercation arose out of irresponsible suggestion from somebody that something else should be played instead of something else. Now, for Edwin, a programme was a programme, sacred, to be executed regardless of every extrinsic consideration. And seeing that the programme was printed, Edwin negatives the suggestion instantly, and the most weighty opinion in the room agreed with him. But Hilda must needs fly out, Why not change it? I'm sure it would be better, etc. Whereas she could be sure of nothing of the sort, and was incompetent to offer an opinion. And she unreasonably and unnecessarily insisted, despite Tertius Ingpen, and the change was made. It was astounding to Eben that, after the shattering scene of the afternoon, she should be so foolhardy, so careless, so obstinate. But she was. He kept his resentment neatly in a little drawer in his mind, and glanced at it now and then. And he thought of Turchis Ingpen's terrible remark about women at Ingpen's first visit. He said to himself, There's a lot in it, no doubt about that. 
At the close of the last item, two of Brahms' Hungarian dances for pianoforte duet, played with truly electrifying brio by little wizening Tom Orgeve and his wife, both Tertius Ingpen and Tom fussed self-consciously about the piano, triumphant, not knowing quite what to do next, and each looking rather like a man who had told a good story, and in the midst of the applause tries to make out by an affectation of casualness that the story is nothing at all. Of course, said Tom Orgreave carelessly and glancing at the ground as he usually did when speaking, fine as those dances are on the piano, I should prefer to hear them with the fiddle. Why? demanded Ingpen, challengingly. Because they were written for the fiddle, said Tom Orgreave with finality. Written for the fiddle? Not a bit of it. With superiority outwardly unruffled, Tom said, uh, Pardon me, Brahms wrote them for Joachim. I've heard him play them. So have I, said Tertius Ingpen, lightly but scornfully. But they were written originally for pianoforte duets, as you played them tonight. Brahms arranged them afterwards for Joachim. Tom Orgreave shook under the blow, for in musical knowledge his supremacy had never been challenged in Bleakridge. Surely, he began weakly, my dear fellow, it is so, said Ingpen impatiently. Look it up, said Edwin with false animation, for his head was thudding. George, fetch Encyclopedia B and J, too. Delighted, George ran off. He'd been examining Johnny Orgreave's watch, and it was to Johnny he delivered the encyclopedia, amid mock protests from his uncle Edwin. More than one person remarked the growing alliance between Johnny and young George. But the encyclopaedia gave no light. Then the eldest Swetnam, who had come by invitation at the last moment, said, I am sure Ingpen is right. He was not sure, but from the demeanour of the two men he could guess, and he thought he might as well share the glory of Ingpen's triumph. The next instant, Tertius Ingpen was sketching out future musical evenings at which quartets and quintets should be performed. He knew men in the orchestra at the Theatre Royal, Hambridge. He knew girl violinists who could be drilled, and he was quite certain that he could get a cello. From this, he went on to part songs, and, in answer to scepticism about local gift for music, he said that, during his visits for his inspection to factories, he had heard spontaneous part singing that would knock spots off the Savoy chorus. Indeed, since his return to it, Ingpen had developed some appreciation of certain aspects of his native district. He said that the kindly common sense with which an inspector he was received on pot banks surpassed anything in the whole country. Talking of pot banks, you'll get a letter from me about the Paris Porcelain Company. Tom Orgreave, lifting his eyebrows, muttered to Edwin with a strange, gloomy constraint. I've had it, said Edwin. You've got some nice clients, I must say. In a moment, though Tom said not a word more, the Palace Porcelain Company was on the carpet, to Edwin's disgust. He hated to talk about misfortune, but others beside himself were interested in the Palace Porcelain Company, and the news of its failure had boomed mysteriously through the Sabbath air of the district. Hilda and Janet were whispering together, and Edwin, gazing at them, saw in them the giggling, tennis-playing children of the previous day, specimens of a foreign race encamped among the men. Suddenly Hilda turned her head towards the men and said, Of course Edwin's been let in. It was a reference to the Palace Porcelain Company. How ungracious, how unnecessary, how unjust! And somehow Edwin had been fearing it, and that was really why he had not liked the turn of the conversation. 
he'd been afraid of one of her darts. Useless for Tom Swetman to say that a number of businessmen quite as keen as Edwin had been let in. From her disdainful silence, it appeared that Hilda's conviction of the unusual simplicity of her husband was impregnable. "'I hear you've got that Shawport land,' said Johnny Orgreave. The mystic influences of music seemed to have been overpowered. "'Who told ye?' asked Edwin in a low voice, once more frightened of Hilda. "'Young Toby Hall met him at the Conservatives' Club last night.' But Hilda had heard. "'What land is that?' she demanded curtly. "'What land is that?' Johnny mimicked her. "'It's the land for the new works, Mrs.' Hilda threw her shoulders back, glaring at Edward with a sort of outraged fury. Happily, most of the people present were talking among themselves. "'You never told me,' she muttered. He said, "'I only knew this afternoon.' Her anger was unmistakable. She was no longer a fluttering feminine wreck on his manly knee. "'Well, good-bye,' said Janet Orgreave startlingly to him. "'Sorry I have to go so soon.' "'You aren't going?' Edwin protested with unnatural loudness. What about the victuals? I shan't touch them myself. But they must be consumed. Here, you and I'll lead the way. Half playfully, he seized her arm. She glanced at Hilda uncertainly. Edwin, said Hilda, very curtly and severely, don't be so clumsy. Janet has to go at once. Mr. Orgreave is very ill, very ill indeed. She only came to oblige us. Then she passionately kissed Janet. It was like a thunderclap in the room. Johnny and Tom confirmed the news. Of the rest, only Tom's wife and Hilda knew. Janet had told Hilda before the music began. Osmond Orgreave had been taken ill between five and six in the afternoon. Dr. Stirling had gone in at once and pronounced the attack serious. Everything possible was done. Even a nurse was obtained instantly from the Klaus Hospital by the station. From reasons of sentiment, if from no other, Janet would have stayed at home and foregone the musical evening. For those Orgreaves at home had put their heads together and decided that Janet should still go, because without her the entire musical evening would crumble to naught. Here was the true reason of the absence of Mrs. Orgreave and Elaine, both unnecessary to the musical evening. The boys had come and Tom's wife had come, because, even considered only as an audience, the Orgreave contingent was almost essential to the musical evening. And so Janet, her father's especial favourite and standby, had come and she had played, and not a word whispered except to Hilda. It was wondrous, it was impressive. All the Orgreaves departed, and the remnant of guests meditated in proud, gratified silence upon the singular fortitude and heroic common sense that distinguished their part of the world. The musical evening was dramatically over, the refreshments being almost wasted. 8. Hilda was climbing on to the wooden-seated chair in the hall to put out the light there, when she heard a noise behind the closed door of the kitchen, which she had thought to be empty. She went to the door and pushed it violently open. Not only was the gas flaring away in an unauthorised manner, not only were both servants, theoretically in bed, still up, capless and apronless, and looking most curious in unrelieved black, but the adventurous and wicked George was surreptitiously with them, flattering them with his aristocratic companionship, and eating blancmange out of a cut glass dish with a tablespoon. Twice George had been sent to bed. Only the servants had been told to go to bed. The worst of carnivals is that the dregs of the population, such as George, will take advantage of them to rise to the surface and, consciousless and mischievous, 
set at defiance the conventions by which society protects itself. She merely glanced at George. The menace of her eyes was alarming. His lower lip fell. He put down the dish and spoon and slunk timorously past her on his way upstairs. Then she said to the servants, You ought to be ashamed of yourselves encouraging him. Go to bed at once. And as they began nervously to handle the things on the table, she added more imperiously, At once. Don't keep me waiting. I'll see to all this. And they followed George meekly. She gazed in disgust at the general litter of broken refreshments, symbolising the traditional inefficiency of servants, and extinguished the gas. The three criminals were somewhat the victims of her secret resentment against Edwin, who, a mere martyrised perambulating stomach, had retired. Edwin had defeated her in the afternoon, and all the evening in the disposition of the furniture, the evidence of his victory had confronted her. By prompt and brutal action, uncharacteristic of him and therefore mean, he had defeated her. True, he had embraced and comforted her tears, but it was the kiss of a conqueror. And then, on the top of that, he had proved his commercial incompetence by making a large, bad debt, and his commercial rashness by definitely adopting a scheme of whose extreme danger she was convinced. One part of her mind intellectually knew that he had not willfully synchronised these events in order to wound her, but another part of her mind felt deeply that he had. She had been staggered by the revelation that he was definitely committed to the project of lithography and the new works. Not one word about the matter had he said to her since their altercation on the night of the reception, and she had imagined that, with his usual indecision, he was allowing it to slide. She scarcely recognised her Edwin. Now she accused him of a malicious obstinacy, not understanding that he was involved in the great machine of circumstance and perhaps almost as much surprised as herself at the movement of events. At any rate, she was being beaten once more, and her spirit rebelled. Through all the misfortunes previous to her marriage, that spirit, if occasionally cowed, had never been broken. She sat grim and fierce against even bum bailiffs in her time. Yes, her spirit rebelled, and the fact that others had known about the Shawport land before she knew made her still more mutinous against destiny. She looked round, dazed at the situation. What? The mild Edwin defying and crushing her? It was scarcely conceivable. The tension of her nerves from this cause only was extreme. Add to it the strain of the musical evening, intensified by the calamity of the Orgreaves. A bell rang in the kitchen, and all the ganglions of her spinal column answered it. Had Edwin rung? No, it was the front door. Pardon me, said Tertius Ingpen when she opened, but all my friends soon learn how difficult it is to get rid of me. Come in, she said, liking his tone, which flattered her by assuming her sense of humour. As I'm sleeping at the office tonight, I thought I might as well take one or two of my musical instruments after all, so I came back. You've been round? she asked, meaning round to the Orgreaves. Yes. What is it, really? Well, it appears to be pericarditis supervening on renal disease. He lost consciousness, you know. Yes, I know. But what is pericarditis? Uh, pericarditis is inflammation of the pericardium. And what's the pericardium? They both smiled faintly. The pericardium is the membrane that encloses the heart. I don't mind telling you that I've only just acquired this encyclopedic knowledge from Sterling. He was there. And is it supposed to be very dangerous? 
I don't know. Doctors never wanted to tell you anything except what you can find out for yourself. After a little hesitating pause, they went into the drawing-room, where the lights were still burning, and the full disorder of the musical evening persisted, including the cigarette ash on the carpet. Tertius Inkpen picked up his clarinet case, took out the instrument, examined the mouthpiece lovingly, and with tenderness laid it back. Do sit down a moment, said Hilda, sitting limply down. It's stifling, isn't it? Let me open the window, he suggested politely. As he returned from the window, he said, pulling his short beard, It was wonderful how those Orgreaves went through the musical evening, wasn't it? Makes you proud of being English. I suppose Janet's a great friend of yours? His enthusiasm touched her, and her pride in Janet quickened to it. She gave a deliberate, satisfied nod in reply to his question. She was glad to be alone with him in the silence of the house. Ed gone to bed? he questioned, after another little pause. Already he was calling her husband Ed, and with an affectionate intonation. She nodded again. He's stuck it out jolly well, said Ingpen, still standing. He brings these attacks on himself, said Hilda, with the calm sententiousness of a good digestion discussing a bad one. She was becoming pleased with herself, with her expensive dress, her position, her philosophy, and her power to hold the full attention of this man. Ingpen replied, looking steadily at her. We bring everything on ourselves. Then he smiled as a comrade to another. She shifted her pose. A desire to discuss Edwin with this man grew in her, for she needed sympathy intensely. What do you think of this new scheme of his? She demanded, somewhat self-consciously. The new works? Seems all right. But I don't know much about it. Well, I'm not so sure and she exposed her theory of the entire satisfactoriness of their present situation, of the needlessness of fresh risks, and of Edwin's unsuitability for enterprise. Of course he's splendid, she said, but he'll never push. I can look at him quite impartially, I mean in all those things. Ingpen murmured, as it were dreamily. Have you had much experience of business yourself? It depends what you call business. I suppose you know I used to keep a boarding-house. She was a little defiant. No, I didn't know. I may have heard vaguely. Did you make it pay? It did pay in the end. But not at first. Any disasters? She could not decide whether she ought to rebuff the cross-examiner or not. His manner was so objective, so disinterested, so innocent, so disarming, that in the end she smiled uncertainly, raising her thick eyebrows. Oh, yes, she said bravely. And who came to the rescue? Ingpen proceeded. Edwin did. I see, said Ingpen, still dreamily. I believe you knew all about it, she remarked, having flushed. Pardon me, almost nothing. Of course you take Edwin's side. Are we talking man to man? he asked suddenly, in a new tone. Most decidedly, she rose to the challenge. Then I'll tell you my leading theory he said in a soft, polite voice. The proper place for women is in the harem. Mr. Ingpen. No, no, he soothed her, but firmly. We're talking man to man. I can whisper sweet nothings to you if you prefer it, but I thought we were trying to be honest. I hold a belief. I state it. I may be wrong, but I hold that belief. You can persecute me for my belief if you like. 
that's your affair. But surely you aren't afraid of an idea. If you don't like the beer word, let's call it Zenana. Call it the drawing room and kitchen. So we're to be kept to our sphere. Now don't be resentful. Naturally you're to be kept to your own sphere. If Edwin began dancing around in the kitchen, you'd soon begin to talk about his sphere. You can't have the advantages of married life for nothing. Neither you nor he. But some of you women nowadays seem to expect them gratis. Let me tell you, everything has to be paid for on this particular planet. I'm a bachelor. I've often thought about marrying, of course. I might get married some day. You never know your luck. If I do, you'll keep your wife in the harem, no doubt, and you'll have to accept without daring to say a word all the risks you choose to take. There you are again, he said. The notion that marriage ought to be the end of risk for a woman is astonishingly rife, I find. Very curious, very curious. He seemed to address the wall. Why, it's the beginning of them. Doesn't the husband take risks? He chooses his own. He doesn't have business risks thrust upon him by his wife. Doesn't he? What about the risk of finding himself tied for life to an inefficient housekeeper? That's a bit of a business risk, isn't it? I've known more than one man let in for it. And you felt so sorry for him? No, not specially. You must run risks. When you've finished running risks, you're dead and you ought to be buried. If I was a wife, I should enjoy running a risk with my husband. I swear I should want to shut myself up in a glass case with him out of all the drafts. Why, what are we all alive for? The idea of the fineness of running risks struck her as original. It challenged her courage, and she began to meditate. Yes, she murmured. So you sleep at the office sometimes? A certain elasticity in one's domestic arrangements. He waved a hand, seeming to poo-poo himself lightly. Then, quickly changing his mood, he bent and said good-night, but not quite with the saccharine artificiality of his first visit, rather with honest, friendly sincerity, in which were mingled both thanks and appreciation. Hilda jumped up responsively, and, the clarinet case under his left arm and the fiddle case in his left hand, leaving the right arm free, Ingpen departed. She did not immediately go to bed. Now that Ingpen was gone, she perceived that though she had really said little in opposition to Edwin's scheme, he had at once assumed that she was a strong opponent of it. Hence, she must have shown her feelings far too openly at the first mention of the affair before anyone had left. This annoyed her. Also, the immense injustice of nearly all Ingpen's arguments grew upon her moment by moment. She was conscious of a grudge against him, even while greatly liking him. But she swore that she would never show the grudge, and that he should never suspect it. To the end, she would play a man's part in the man-to-man -man discussion. Moreover, her anger against Edwin had not decreased. Nevertheless, a sort of zest, perhaps an angry joy, filled her with novel and intoxicating sensations. Let the scheme of the new works go forward. Let it fail. Let it ruin them. She would stand at the breach. She would show the whole world that no ordeal could lower her head. She had had enough of being the odalisk and the queen, reclining on the soft couch of security. Her nostrils scented life on the wind. Then she heard a door close upstairs, and began at last rapidly, as it were cruelly, to put out the lights. 9. 
The incubus and humiliations of a first-class bilious attack are not eternal. Edwin had not retired very long before the malignant phase of the terrible malady passed inevitably, by phenomena according with all clinical experience, into the next phase. And the patient, who from being chiefly a stomach had now become chiefly a throbbing head, lay on his pillow, exhausted, but once more capable of objective thought. His resentment against his wife on account of her gratuitous disbelief in his business faculty, and on account of her interference in a matter that did not concern her, flickered up into new flame. He was absolutely innocent. She was absolutely guilty. No excuse insisted or could be invented for her rude and wounding attitude. Her esteemed Tertius Ingpen, bachelor, the most fortunate of men. Women, unjust, dishonourable, unintelligent, unscrupulous, giggling, pleasure-loving. Their appetite for pleasure was infantile and tigerish. He had noticed it growing in Hilda. Previous to marriage, he had regarded Hilda as combining the best feminine with the best masculine qualities. In many ways she had exhibited the comforting, straightforward characteristics of the male. But since marriage, her mental resemblance to a man had diminished daily, and now she was the most feminine woman he had ever met, in the unsatisfactory sense of the word. Women. Still, the behaviour of Janet and Hilda during the musical evening had been rather heroic. Impossible to dismiss them as being exclusively of the giggling race. They had decided to play a part, and they had played it with impressive fortitude. And the house of the Orgreaves, was it about to fall? He divined that it was about to fall. No death had so far occurred in the family, which had seemed to be immune through decades and forever. He wondered what would have happened to the House of Orgreave in six months' time. Then he went back into the dark origins of his bilious attack. And then he was at an inexcusable Hilda again. At length he heard her on the landing. She entered the bedroom, and quickly he shut his eyes. He felt unpleasantly through his eyelids that she had turned up the gas. Then she was close to him, and sat down on the edge of the bed. She asked him a question, calmly as to occurrences since his retirement. He nodded an affirmative. "'Your forehead's all broken out,' she said, moving away. In a few moments he was aware of the delicious, soothing, heavenly application to his forehead of a handkerchief drenched in eau de cologne and water. The compress descended upon his forehead with the infinite gentleness of an endearment and the sudden solace of a reprieve. He made faint, inarticulate noises. The light was extinguished for his ease. He murmured weakly, Are you undressed already? No, she said quietly. I can't undress all right in the dark. He opened his eyes and could dimly see her moving darkly about, brushing her hair, casting garments. Then she came towards him, a vague whiteness against the gloom, and bending, felt for his face and kissed him. She kissed him with superb and passionate violence. She drew his life out of him and poured in her own. The tremendous kiss seemed to prove that there is no difference between love and hate. It contained everything. Surrender, defiance, anger and tenderness. Neither of them spoke. The kiss dominated and assuaged him. Its illogicalness overthrew him. He could never have kissed like that under such circumstances. It was a high and bold gesture. It expressed and transmitted confidence. 
She had explained nothing, justified nothing, made no charge, asked no forgiveness. She had just confronted him with one unarguable fact, and it was the only fact that mattered. His pessimism about marriage lifted. If his spirit was splendidly romantic enough to match hers, marriage remained a feasible state. And he threw away logic and the past, and in a magic vision saw that success in marriage was an affair of goodwill and the right tone. With the whole force of his heart he determined to succeed in marriage. And, in the mighty resolve, marriage presented itself to him as really rather easy, after all. End of Book One, Chapter Nine